looking at legacy, how, how we look at ourselves, how we look at the big picture, um, what do we want people to think about us after we're gone? I, I think, now this is, just, this is just me, this is just me um, supposing, okay, I don't know for sure. This, I think it's because I, I, see, I see people, circumstances, things. And, uh, and I wonder how people, how people look at themselves, how people look at themselves. I don't mean physically, although I think physically sometimes too, right? How, how do you look at yourself? You can't, I don't think you can just look at yourself physically. I think when you look at yourself, you've heard me say it this way, that the person that, that I'm looking at right now is the physicalness of who you are, but the person looking back at me is is. The God created. Well, they're both God created. You don't understand what I'm saying. The spirit. Who I'm looking at is the physical. Who look, who's looking back at me is the spirit. Is, is you. I can't see you. I can only see the, the, um, the, the tent that you live in. Right? That's all I can see. But when you look at you, you see both. You, you see the whole thing. You see all of who you are. And I've often looked at this and wondered so many different ways and things. And I know, I know this comes from me just pastoring forever and, and, um, and counseling people forever, those kind of things. How can... Okay, so, so I'm going to ask a question that we had. There's an answer we're supposed to answer, and then there's the other part of it. There's like the, other, the, the real answer kind of thing. Um, how can somebody be duplicitous. How can somebody be, I don't want to use the word hypocritical, but I, I guess we could use that. How can you be one thing in one setting and something else in another setting? Now, here is the, the, here is the real answer for that. We all do that at some level. Every one of us do that. There, you can't not do that under certain circumstances. Okay, I am... I don't, the, the right word is not hypocritical because to me hypocritical means that you're one thing that's dishonest in one setting and something else in another. That's not what I mean. But I think we're all different things to different people under different circumstances. That doesn't mean any of them have to be a misrepresentation of you or, or um, not honest. You, you understand what I'm saying? Okay. Uh, for example, there's one way that I... Well, I'll give you the easy example. There's one way that I'm going to act with my wife in public, and there's another way that I act with my wife in private. Okay? Um, there's one way that I act with my wife as a female, and there's another way that I act with other women that are females. Right? I'm not being, I'm not being dishonest. I'm not being dis, disingenuous. But there are different aspects of who I am under different circumstances. Now, with that being said, I also know that we can do the exact same thing, but actually be being hypocritical and dishonest under certain circumstances. I've had a lot of conversations, even just in the last oh, year, year and a half, because there's so many things. I mentioned this Sunday, there's so many things that are going on in our church, and this is this is not new, by the way, for me anyways. This is not new. I, I, the reason I said it as, as uh, bold and strong as I said it Sunday is because I'm realizing we've got like the tale of two churches going on all the time at Church of Briargate. We got the, the real, I don't want to misrepresent this, there's the nitty-gritty that this is real life and people are dealing with difficult circumstances. And then there's this other side that's kind of naive that, that I think almost purposefully naive that says, this side doesn't really exist. There's not really all that stuff and sin and things going on, but there is. It's called being human. It's called, it's called working out our salvation. And I think what happens is if you're not careful, you can be part of a mentality that says that I've graduated into betterness, and so I'm not, that's not really who, who I am anymore. Now, I, I don't, I'm not out there sinning and doing a bunch of stuff, but I also know that the, uh, the, the, I think one of the greatest quotes ever is, but for the grace of God, go I. 
right? That I know my sin nature, and I know my sin nature is always there in, in the way uh, Genesis says it, that Satan is always crouching at the door waiting for us. And when we get, when we kind of blind our eyes to that and get naive to that, it's a dangerous place to be. So we've got this, this thing going on, constant in our lives, uh, g- good and bad. It's not always negative. I don't want to, I don't want to misrepresent that. It's not always negative, but there's, there's different facets of who we are. There's different layers of who we are. Sometimes those are good and bad. Sometimes they're sin and not sin. Sometimes they're just different elements of who we are, and, and they can be good, right? But when that's all said and done, who do you want to be remembered as? How do you... I had this conversation with a businessman. This is 20, literally 25 years ago. And his, his kids were in my youth group, and we were talking about... Um, we were in a Sunday school class talking about finances, tithing and things like that. And you know, I'm a 21-year-old youth pastor, and uh, he, 22 maybe, and he said something about the fact that, um, that you, should, you tithe, but only off of what you pay yourself. You don't tithe off of your business. Your business doesn't tithe. You tithe off of what your business pays you. And I thought about that for a while, and I had read stories, many stories, like the guy that started Firestone, he tithed off of the business. Um, uh, J.C. Penney's, when J.C. Penney started, they, he tithed off of the business, not off of what he paid himself. And you can give a lot of examples of it. There's a, there's a guy right now, I just saw him, I talked to him, I met him and talked to him probably 15 years ago, but... He does auto parts and auto detailing stuff. Meguiar's, have you ever seen that? It's an auto, it's an auto uh, name. It's a name in auto parts, stuff like that, Meguiar's. Um, I met that guy years ago. Amazing Christian man, and he says he tithes off his business. And so I'm sitting there as a young man, didn't know when to keep my mouth shut. What I mean by keeping my mouth shut is sometimes you don't say what you know is to be truth because the person's not going to receive it, and you're just going to cause a problem, Right? I have some people that will disagree with that. I'm not totally against disagreeing with that. They're so, no, you should always speak truth no matter what. I, sometimes, sometimes it's the pearls before swine thing. Sometimes you just, you're wasting breath in this. And I didn't know the difference in that at the time. And I told him, I said, I really think if, if you tithe off of your business, I think God would honor your business, not just your personal life. He said to me, oh, you don't know business. You don't understand business. So I didn't say anything else, and I thought to myself, oh, you don't know God, <laughs> but I didn't say that out loud. <clears throat> I've, often, I've often thought, what really are our priorities? Who are we really? Are we one person at work? Are we somebody else at home? Are we somebody else at church? I do know for the most part, we're the best of the best when we're sitting in church, right? For the most part. Um, it's amazing to me how many Christians cuss. I, I don't understand that. It doesn't compute in my head. But I come, I, I'm always surprised and eye-opened when it's like about once a week I come, a, I, I come across a Christian that I know is a good Christian that cusses. I just don't understand that, okay? To me, it's just, that's all the words you got? That's the best, after I say all you got, I'm going to talk about grammar. But that's the, that's the best you can come up with? It's some kind of superlatives? I don't understand that. But, but So with that, I, I've often thought, who are you? Because very rarely is anybody going to stand up in church and cuss in church. But they'll cuss at home. Although, Lynn and I have met many that have cussed at church. And specifically newer Christians. <laughs> I've had people cuss in the middle of my sermons. I've said that before, right? I, I, I was preaching a sermon. This has happened to me half a dozen times. I was preaching a sermon years ago, and this guy stood up at the back and just, he was brand new Christian, brand new. He was a gang, gang leader in the area and a drug dealer and all this other stuff. And he stood up and he said, that's the best bleeping preaching I've ever heard. Sat back down, and everybody's like, they didn't know what to do. And I told him, I said, that's one of the best amens I've ever had. He didn't know. Nobody, he didn't know he was saying something wrong. He didn't know. Um, we've had, we could give you, Lynn and I have talked about this difference. We could give you example after example of people that are, you're just like, what, what did you just say, you know, right in the middle of church or in a setting or something. That's different. They're brand new Christians. Okay, that's different. 
Um, I was about to give you more examples, but it's, they're just funny to me. But, but that's different than somebody that's been a Christian for 20 years and still just cusses every now and then. Because nothing else will work good enough. Really? Really? How do you want to be really known, though? How do you want to be known? Is that part of how you want to be known? And I think about, I think about it, I talked about this some last week. I've mentioned this, I've dropped this in through messages on the weekend and Wednesday nights a lot lately. But I've really been thinking about doing a series, probably on the weekend even, because I think it's important, doing a series on just holiness, what holiness is, and why. Holiness is more than just keeping the rules. Holiness is bowing before a holy, completely holy God and saying, I want to submit to you. And part of that is, I want to submit to your holiness. You're holy. And that shouldn't there be a desire to want some of, to look like that some? Shouldn't there be something in our hearts that says, I don't like, I don't like sin. I don't like what it feels like. I don't want to, I don't like what it, what it makes me feel like or look like or make others feel like or look like. I don't, I don't like that. We're, we're losing that more and more in today's society. Just holiness. Just, I want to be holy. Why? Because God is holy. That's what Peter said, right? Why are we holy? Why do we want to be holy? Because he's holy. So how do you want to be seen? How do you want to be perceived? How do you want um, your kids and your kids and your kids, you know, grandkids, 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 how do you want them to see you and to know you? How do you want your, your coworkers right now to know you? I, I, I was... Um, I was a youth pastor. I'd been a youth pastor for a while. This was probably mid-90s by this time. And, um, and um, so when I went to college, when I went to university, before I went to Southwestern, I went to a state university in Texas. And I was in the Navy at the time. And um, every weekend I would go to my drills. Um, once a month I would go to my drills and I had my Navy uniform on. Then I'd come back. Nowadays they've got like they were like camouflage, blue camouflage. They're cool uniforms. We had Cracker Jacks back in the day. And uh, I'd come back into the dorm, and I'd be wearing my uniform. So everybody called me Navy. The whole dorm called me Navy. Um, there was this guy that was across the hall from me that, that was um, not a Christian. I wasn't a Christian at the time. I got saved that semester. So about halfway through the semester, I got saved and I began to change everything. It really began to, I mean, systematically, because that's how I'm marked. I systematically began to change everything about me. I took everything that I had that was not God's, and I took it away. Like I had stacks of cassettes of rock and roll and heavy metal, all kinds of stuff. And I, and I systematically took those and busted those up and took them down to the, the trash at the end of the hall and did all this. And these guys are watching me do all this kind of stuff. And I'm not doing it for them. It had literally nothing to do with anybody else. Just God consecrating my life. And I got rid of just junk, just junk. This guy across the hall is watching all that, right? And he was a, man, this dude was, he was breaking records of reprobate. And uh, he, um, he, had a, he had a prostitute come and live in his room for about two weeks. He took his door off, too, and hung a hammock up across the room, and he had that prostitute in there, directly across from my door. I, I'm trying to serve Jesus now, and he's making this very challenging, okay? I don't need to go into detail, right? Okay, we get it, we get it. All right, so mid-90s, seven years later, I'm a youth pastor of a church, and our children's pastor was excited because her brother was coming, her brother and her brother's wife's coming to see her and excited about all this, and we, so finally, uh, she, she comes running down to my office, my, our children's pastor's wife, and was running down to my office, Hey, they're here, they're here. They wanted us to meet her brother and sister-in-law. They're excited. So we go walking out to the front of the church, and um, this guy gets out of the car and starts walking up, and I'm thinking, that guy looks familiar. Gets about 15 feet away, and he recognized me the same moment I recognized him. He was the guy across the hall. Okay? 
He's married, got kids. I'm married, we've got one kid probably by that time, two by that time. And I kind of give it one of those, you know, like a dog going, uh-huh. you know, that kind of, I recognize him, he recognized me, he goes, hey, Navy. Like, let's not begin telling old stories. It's not like I was buddies with this guy, but I knew him. I mean, it was, was across the hall from him for a year. He goes, hey, Navy. And I said, hey, said his name. How you been? Life's good. Let's just start from right here and go forward. He goes, that's a good idea. It's a great idea. I never said anything. We didn't talk about it. We didn't nothing. Just, but here's the thing. The reason I'm telling that story is for the rest of my life, if I see him again this day, I don't even know if I'd recognize him then, but if, if I were to see him again right now, I would not help but, but that would be part of his legacy to me in my head. See what I'm saying? Um, <clears throat> if you had the opportunity right now, if the doors open and all of a sudden Peter, the apostle, comes walking in, and we all knew it was Peter, we're going to immediately go through some highlights of his resume, right? One of them is going to be when he denied Jesus three times, right? You guys have heard me talk about this with Thomas. What is Thomas's nickname? Doubting Thomas. One sentence in his entire life. One sentence. And that's his moniker. What about um, Jimmy Swaggart? For years, I had uh, some of his teachings. Well, long after. He, he, he had his fall when I was in high school and then the second time when I was in college. Okay? I, I kept his teaching for years. I, I've still got books in my office that he wrote, well, specifically when it comes to Revelation and stuff like that. I still got some of his teachings. I don't agree with it all. Some of it I think he got wrong, but most of it is as good as there is to this day. But you meet Jimmy Swagger and you can't take that off the table. You can't just pretend like it didn't happen. Um, and I could, I could just begin to name pastor after pastor, leader, church leader in history, all these other things. And there's a legacy that we leave. Let me look at this. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. This is a very interesting sentence. Because Solomon hits something here that is actually a commercial on TV right now today. I'll explain that. Then I observe that most people are motivated to success because they envy their neighbors. How right now is, it, is Solomon nailing it? He is talking about society right now. Most of society. A lot of the reasons that we want certain things is because of the way other people perceive us, see us, or, or see those things about us. Now, some things, we just desire them just because um, it's, it's something we desire. But a lot of times it's because of the way society sees us or looks at us or whatever the case is. Um, the easiest is clothing. We don't... We don't get rid of most of our clothes because they act, literally are falling off of us, right? Except, like, underwear, and that's mostly guys. But we don't get rid of our clothes because it's, um, because it's so tattered it literally falls off. It's because styles change. For the most part, it's because styles change, which means what? Even though we may say, well, I don't necessarily care what other people think about us, we do enough because we change our styles at different times. Okay? Something simple like, if you have a pair of shoes that's comfortable and feel good, why do you need another pair of shoes? Because... 
<laughs> For most people, the reason you have more than one pair of shoes is because of what they look like with an outfit. Right? Not because of functionality, not because of comfortableness, but because of a setting, which means that we are putting on that, and we could do this with all kinds of things, but we are putting that second pair of shoes on It's because there are people that will be seeing us. Right? If you know nobody is going to see you, you dress differently. Right, you have two. You have a pair of flip-flops also. But right, I mean, we do certain things because if you're just going to be lazing around the house all day or you're going to be working out in the yard, you dress differently than when you're going to go out to dinner or to something else. Why? Don't, don't fool yourself into believing just because it makes me feel good when I'm looking this way. No, you feel better when you're at home in those clothes working on the yard. We do things because of other people. This isn't bad. It doesn't make us bad. In fact, it makes us socially acceptable, right? You need to do these things. But some of the things, now look at this again. I observe that most people are motivated to success because they envy their neighbors. That's a whole other level to success. Who defines success? He is saying this a few thousand years ago, and he is defining success in some ways the, the way we would define success today. It has to do with the way other people are perceiving us. Okay? But this too is meaningless, like chasing the wind. Because why? Um, sometimes we don't have uh, money, extra money to be spending on something, and yet we'll still go down and buy a new shirt or something because we're going to something or doing something. It's chasing the wind. There's a commercial on TV right now having to do with the internet. You guys seen it? And it says, oh, our internet's so fast, we're keeping up with the, and then it just starts one family, the next family, Joneses, the Smiths. The, that is exactly this sentence right here. And this is the sentence that they're using on the commercial. Now we can keep up with you. Shows another family, the, the, uh, the, the, the Gonzaleses. Now we can keep up with the, the uh, whoever's. And it just goes name after name after name after name after name. And we all kind of chuckle a little bit. And we know the reason that that is such a, a, a successful commercial is because that's what we're doing. Now, for, let me just use Internet as an example. We can use other ones that, that are in different categories. For me, Internet. Do I get Internet because I'm worried about my, what my next-door neighbor has? Literally, no. I don't think about that. I get Internet because what I'm trying to accomplish with Internet. But we do that. If you go far enough into your life, you can begin to find things that you're doing, you're purchasing, you're engaging with because of somebody else. Why, why am I bringing that into this? Because I think that has to play. Doesn't that have to play out somehow with our legacy, with who we are? With somehow, doesn't that play out with our legacy? Here's, let me give you the other side of it. Let's say that you never, ever do that. It never comes into play for you. You never do anything because of what somebody else will think. Well, then you're leaving a total different legacy that people will say about you. Right? Um, I had an uncle that, that, going back to the clothing mentality, he wore the exact same clothes. I met him in... Well, I met him when I was a baby, but when I remember knowing him, he was about five or six years old. This would have been mid-70s. He dressed from the 60s. Two or three decades later, wearing the exact same clothes. So that, in my head, that becomes part of who he is to me. So you can't win no matter what. But here's the, here's the thing is, what do you want people to think about you? Because I'm talking actually more than what you dress like or things like that. I'm talking about who you are. Do, do, how, how do you want people to perceive you? Okay, now let's go to um, uh, let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 2. I'm going to start in uh, verse 12. Let me make sure. Yeah, verse 12. Okay. I, I, I use this about 
four or five months ago, I, I talked about this scripture just a little bit, but from a total different perspective. I want to come back to this, and let's look at something else. Now, the sons of Eli were scoundrels who had no respect for the Lord. Who was Eli? High priest. Okay? So, who were his sons? They were priests too. Because this was a, this was a uh, nepotistic structure that God had created. Right? The tribe of Levi. All the Levites were, I, I was just having this conversation with, um, with our um, district superintendent a, a, a week ago or so, and he said something about, now where is your son? I said, oh, he's down in Beaumont, he's a children's pastor. He said, you can't get him up here to Colorado? And I said, well, we tried a little bit, but I want him to do what God's will is. He said, God's will? Man, we believe in nepotism. Get your grandkid up here to Colorado. I'm like, I, I received that. I felt the Lord when you said that. But I, 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 I don't like the mentality of nepotism for nepotism's sake. But I don't necessarily think... See, this is the thing. You take in ministry. If I were to hire my son as a minister in our church... Some people would have a problem with that because of nepotism. But if I own a plumbing company and I hire him as a plumber, nobody has a problem with that. Although nowhere in Scripture does it talk about a plumber and his son, but it does talk about a priest and his son, the priest. Just throwing that out there. All right. So, just in case we can get our granddaughter here. Now, so Eli was a high priest, and his sons were priests because they were part of the Levitical priesthood. Eli's sons were scoundrels who had no respect for the Lord or their duties as priests. Whenever anyone offered a sacrifice, Eli's sons would send over a servant with the three-pronged fork. While the meat of the sacrifice animal was still boiling, the servant would stick the fork into the pot and demand that whatever it brought up be given to Eli's sons. Well, that's... It's a nice way to do that. I think if you're going to pray that way, it would be more factual for the servant to pray, whatever God levitates out of the water, I will take to Eli's sons. And then it's truly up to God. Don't act like God is the one directing what gets stuck to that fork. Right? You see what I'm saying? Okay. So all the Israelites who came to work at Shiloh were treated this way. Now, this is, this is something that, <clears throat> that gets me because <clears throat> the first sentence, the sons of Eli's were scoundrels who had no respect for the Lord or for their duties as priests. That's on Eli. Now, I don't want to cross a line here because you can raise your children in God and they don't serve God. I, I understand that. There's no doubt that I understand that. Okay? You can raise your children in the ways of God and they still are individuals in, that, that make their own decisions. They're individuals that make their own decisions, okay? But this is beyond that. Because what are they doing? They're fulfilling the duties as a priest, which is Eli's responsibility to God, separate from his parental uh, responsibilities to his sons. If, as Eli the high priest... He raises his children the way he's supposed to, assuming that would happen. And I would say that everything in this story is evidence that Eli was not, he was not raising his children the way he was supposed to. Because he's compounding this when they become adults rather than set them off to the side and say, you are not going to be part of the priesthood because you do not respect God. He allows them to stay in the priesthood and even in positions of authority to the point where the other priest and the, and the temple servants will not argue with them or buck them. If they can walk right in while the sacrifice is being done and the sons are somewhere else and the servant can scoop meat out of the boiling pot while the sacrifice is, that means the other priests are not saying anything. The servants are not saying anything. Why? Because they're scared of the high priest who has authority over everybody. That is horrible nepotism. That is a, an ungodly form of nepotism. And that is all on Eli. It would be different if the scripture said, Eli raised his children in God, and when they got old, they didn't serve God, so Eli had to remove them from the priesthood. That's a total different subject. You see what I'm saying? Now, why am I bringing this out? Because, to me, this, this, is, this is Eli's legacy. 
Eli started off, I believe, I talked about this because we were talking about Samuel and Eli. God was speaking to Samuel and all that stuff, which, which happens right down below this. But, but uh, the, the, Eli, Eli started at some level, Eli started as a godly man. But somewhere, he fell in love with something else way more than God. And apparently, it included his, his sons. He couldn't tell his sons no. He couldn't, he couldn't discipline them. He couldn't fire them from the priesthood. He couldn't do the things that he was supposed to do to them. Just basic things about the cleanliness laws. I'm not saying that like the physical cleanliness laws like leprosy and stuff. I'm saying like the spiritual, how do you purify yourself? And to me, this is part of the legacy that Eli is leaving here. This is, this is a big one for me. Now, as my uh, children are adults, I can't make my kids do things. I have very little control over my children at this point, which I don't necessarily want control. That's not what I'm saying. But it really is their decisions. The, the life is their decisions. And I hope they make the right decisions. Sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. That's not what I'm addressing. I'm not addressing whether my children are serving God the way they're supposed to. But as a parent slash pastor, I have a responsibility to God and to this church. I couldn't hire one of my kids if they're not serving God. No matter how I might try to justify it or whatever, I can't hire one of my kids if they're not, if they're not going by the same criteria that I would hold for all of our staff. Because why? That's part of me. That's part of my legacy. I don't, I don't, want, I don't want somebody right now in our community, in our church community, outside our church community, or somebody 20 years from now to say, well, you know, he was, he was a good pastor. He loved the church except when it came to his kids. And he let them do anything. Guys, that's legacy, Right? That's spiritual legacy, not just family legacy. That's spiritual legacy. Because at some point, you're, you're allowing your relationships, your children, whatever, to override your responsibilities that you have for God. That's where, it's, that's where, it, gets a little, that's where it gets dangerous. Because at the end of all of this, um, Eli sacrificed his soul and his eternity for, for this. And we don't know all the details. We don't know exactly why. But at some level, he sacrificed his eternity because of his sons. That's, that's where it gets scary. So, um, well, before I, go to the next, before I go to the next part of this, um, well, let me read a little bit before this, before we switch. Verse 17. So the sin of these young men was very serious in the Lord's sight, for they treated the Lord's offerings with contempt. They treated the Lord's offering with contempt. But Samuel, though he was only a boy, served the Lord. I love that sentence. But Samuel, even though he was only a boy, he was, do, he was serving God while the priest and the high priest were not serving God. But Samuel was serving God. Okay, so let me, let me switch now and go to the next part of the Scripture. But before I do that, is there anything... Give me another example in Scripture where there's good or bad, but there's a, there's a legacy that we remember that, that, that follows a person. It's their legacy. It's part of who they are. What's another one? I could name some people and you could tell me, let's do it that way. What's... When you think about Moses, when I say Moses, what do you think of? And we're all going to, we may not all be the same. In fact, we probably won't be the same here. When I say Moses, what do you think of? He's a leader. That's definitely part of his legacy. Probably, I've said this many times over the years, but I think he's probably one of the best leaders in all of history. To, to lead two to three million people like he did, in, re, in, the, in the rebellion that they had through the desert for 40 years, all this other stuff, to lead those people and them not kill him? 
he was, he was a great leader. He was just a great leader. What else about Moses? What's, what's part of his legacy? Say that again. Power. Yeah. And um, in, in proximity to just the presence of God. Uh, in a way that nobody really had experienced since Adam and Eve at that point. In my, in my seeing, in the way I look at Scripture, Moses was the first person to come back into close contact with God since Adam and Eve. Um, in just a u- very unique way. Right? So that's, his face glowed, you gotta, I mean, you gotta include that, right? Um, what else about Moses? Say that again. So many times. One time, you know, the, the, the uh, plague is sweeping across the people, and Moses goes and grabs the staff, Aaron's staff, and uh, tells Aaron, go stand out there, and Moses stands out, and the plague stops right at them. That's real intercession. That's, you know, I, I, I said I did this in a sermon years ago, but it doesn't really totally work theologically, and so I don't. I don't approach it like this again, but just to think about it like this. What if, as people that are praying for other people, so, so I find out that so-and-so has cancer, and I step in as an intercessor with the mentality, this doesn't work this way, but what if it did? With the mentality that that cancer is a moving thing, that if I don't, as an intercessor, if I don't really go before God, in spirit and in truth and humility and, and boldness and power and everything else that a prayer person needs, that that cancer would then get on me. Or I would just stay away. If that was the way it worked in our society, how many of us would not pray? Seriously. When Moses and Aaron stepped out there, they didn't know if that plague was going to sweep across them. It was literally, you could see it going across the people. And when Moses and Aaron stepped out there, it stopped right at them. What if it worked like that for sickness with us? Would we step out there is what I'm saying. That's what I'm getting to. Would we step out there as an intercessor? Moses did. Partly because he was an intercessor, but I think also there had to have been this included. He knew God enough to know. He could trust God enough to know, and maybe there was just some heart of his that says, I'll sacrifice myself to this too. But I think it was the closeness with God that he knew. He knew God was going to stop. Okay? So let's name somebody else. <clears throat> That's who I was going to say. That's who I was going to say. Anna, you and I are clicking. My new, brand new, fresh idea that nobody has said, King Saul. Let's try that. <laughs> um. When you, when you think of King Saul, what is his legacy? Very insecure. What else? Yeah. To the point where Shakespeare wrote about it. That's crazy, right? Um, tried to kill David. His son-in-law. Okay. I said that one time in service years ago. I said that. I heard this guy over the side say, I'd like to kill my son-in-law. <laughs> I'm like, that's not where we were going with that, but okay, sir. But, I mean, that's the legacy that he leaves. I would love for somebody to say, if I'm a warrior, if I'm a warrior, I would love for somebody to say about me, he has killed his thousands. Right? But for Saul... Saul, that was a horrible statement. Why? Because the next sentence is, and David has killed his tens of thousands. And, and it didn't matter that Saul was proving himself to be a great warrior and the people loved him. It's the fact that he couldn't stand the idea that they loved David more. Right? I, I thought about that. Um, I, I heard some sermons like about this years ago. I mean, I hear them every now and then, but I've thought about this over the years with a staff that I've hired and what it would look like for somebody that I've hired to really uh, rise to a place of prominence and stuff like that. 
I don't see that as a negative for me. I really don't understand. I mean, I can understand how people might see that. Now, I don't want to get to a point like a year from now, everybody's saying, we want Sam as our pastor. We I don't want that. Okay? Um, but I don't see that as a jealousy issue. I see that as like, I'm the pastor. You know, that kind of thing. So, but for somebody to, raise to, to rise to a position of importance or prominence or whatever, to me, I think that's a good thing. I, I think one of the best things I can say when I was a youth pastor and one of the best things I can say as a pastor, that when I was a youth pastor, I've got, I've got kids that grew up in our youth groups that are all over the United States doing ministry and some in foreign fields doing ministry as pastors, missionaries, all kinds of things. And then a numeral amount that are business people that are, you know, all that kind of stuff. As a pastor, it's the same thing. People that have, that have come up in, what, in the churches that we've pastored that are now pastors. I don't see that as a negative. Saul saw that as a negative. Right? That's a dangerous thing. Okay, somebody else. David. David's easy, though, right? Great warrior, king. Greatest king that's ever lived. Greatest king ever. Not as wise as his son, not as wealthy as his son, but the greatest king ever. I think I mentioned this a year or two ago, that there was this weird debate that was happening for about 20 or 30 years that David never actually existed, that he was a, a mythical character, right? That was in the theological ranks. That's not in the world. That's in the theological circles. I first heard about this at Denver Seminary 15 years ago, that maybe King David wasn't real. He was mythical. And in the last year or two, they've been uncovering a bunch of archaeological evidence that shows that David was real. Okay, I'm glad for that. I was about to say, did we need that? But I guess we do, because I'm making the assumption that he is. It's nice to have archaeological evidence, but I actually had a conversation with a guy one time, and this was my, this was years ago, this was my uh, comeback. It sounds stupid now that I say it out loud, but it was like King David didn't even really exist. There's no archaeological evidence. I said, yes, there is. There's King David Hotel. <laughs> he was like, I don't think that's archaeological evidence. I'm like, you know, ran away. So, uh, but I get that. But, but King David is literally the greatest king ever, ever. He was a horrible father. He, he, one of his sons, it says, I would assume this wasn't just that son, but it says he never told him no. The Bible says that. He never told him no. Yes. Yeah. To the, at the expense of his daughter being raped. Yeah. I mean, just horrible things that he did, but at the same time, what's the greatest statement about David ever? Man after God's own heart. If I could just have one sentence said about me after I'm gone. Not by people. I, I don't, it doesn't, it's not the same if a person says that. It's when God says that. That's a legacy. Moses, wisest, uh, I'm sorry, the most humble man that ever lived. You know the interesting thing about that sentence? He wrote it. Moses wrote that sentence. I am, I mean, Moses is the most humble man ever. Now, I have to believe it's true because it did make the scripture, therefore the Holy Spirit allowed it to stay. So apparently it was true, at least at that time. What are some things Jesus said about people that are their legacy? That's part of their legacy. He did. Um, he he refer, referred to um, Elijah, and he and he tied John the Baptist to Elijah. That's a pretty powerful statement, right there. For the Messiah to tie his cousin to the, probably the greatest prophet ever. That's amazing, isn't it? What about when Nathaniel comes walking up to him? 
What does he say about Nathaniel? There is no guile. What does that mean, no guile? Right, no, he does not have a deceitful heart. He is, he is purely honest. What? Um, you know, for years when I read that sentence, who has no guile, you know what I thought that meant? That he had no bile. For years I thought that that's what that meant as a kid. I was like, what does his stomach acid have to do with this? For years. And then one day I was like, that's not what that means. <laughs> I literally thought it meant bile. Until I was like a teenager. Okay, so. Yeah, that's true. I ain't salty. Um, I also used to sing, um, I ain't salty. Um, I also used to sing um, the song, uh, Phil Kagey did the song, other people did it too, but Phil Kagey did it, it was um, Who Wrote the Book of the Seven Seals? For years and years, I thought that was Who Wrote the Book of the Seven Seas? I'm like, I don't, I, it was probably a sailor, whoever wrote it was probably a sailor. I, I was a dumb kid, so. <laughs> Sinbad wrote it, pretty sure. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> oh yeah. So, Jesus says about somebody, there's no deceit in this person. They're a purely honest person. What, what better testimony? What about when Jesus says, who does he say this about? He says, for, for now on, every time my gospel is preached, you'll be mentioned. And he, and he literally is saying, your testimony, uh, it's not the woman at the well, it's um, the, the lady that gave the, uh, the, the, the pennies, mites, yes. Now, this is an interesting thing. Jesus says, every time, every time my gospel is preached, you'll be mentioned with it. Why? Why does he say that? Because she was given from the very essence of who she was. She was sacrificially giving, completely giving. I, 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 had, um, I was saying this one time, this was years ago, I was a youth pastor, and I was, I was uh, taking up the offering. And I said something along the, in the offering, something along the, I'd heard another pastor say this, and I thought it was clever, but I didn't think it through, and I didn't realize, I was, I was saying something I thought somebody else had said that was clever, but it wasn't actual, it wasn't factual, it wasn't theologically accurate. And I was, I get, was taking up the offering, and I said, um, uh, you know, God wants us to tithe, wants us to do all these kind of things, but God won't ever ask you to give more than you have. Right? God will never ask you to give more than you have. It's not theologically accurate. Sometimes God asks you to give so deep that you don't have it. And by the way, this is not just financially, right? Now, I would argue that theoretically you do have it because God is the supplier of all things, but that's not what this other guy said, and that's not what I was saying. Okay? Um, I was saying it from the point of view, God will ask you to give from your excess. Except that's not what he says. Remember, I've talked about this before, that in the Assemblies of God in America, we have 16 beliefs. In most countries in, around the world, Africa is included in this. I know India is included in this. There's like a 17th, um, uh, the 17th belief, and it's sacrifice. That's written in, in ways in America we do not ever include. Sacrifice. Now, it used to be included, but sacrifice. Do we want to be known as somebody that sacrificially gives? Because Jesus, when he saw her give, he said, forever, this will be included in the story. And all she did was just give a few pennies. Right? 
I brought a bunch of those little mites back from uh, Jerusalem when we went to Israel, when we went to Israel, and he handed them out in the service the next day. If you, if you want one, I have some in, in my desk. And I see those every now and then. It just reminds me, they're small, insignificant little pieces of metal. And Jesus said, you will always be remembered because of this. How huge is that? What's something else Jesus said about somebody? What? What did he say? Okay, he used... Now, he's not giving Jonah... um, He's not bringing credibility to Jonah because he's in the belly of the whale, right? Uh, In fact, I would say theologically, this is pretty, pretty solid, I would say, is he is equating... Jonah being in the belly of the well is a difficult, dark place because of sin, but it was because of Jonah's sin, and Jesus is going into the belly of the well for three days because of our sin. So, so he's not saying Jonah did good by landing in the belly of the well, but he does equate that with the two. So Jesus is, Jesus is even kind of putting a stamp on Jonah, even though the end of the story for Jonah is okay, he's putting a stamp on Jonah that's not a good legacy. This, this is another, this is like the Moses saying the most humble man on the earth. This is one that falls in line with this. This is a revelation that when I got this, it was quite a few years ago, and I'm reading this one day, and this epiphany happens. And I've talked about this in service before. But the story of Jonah is not a good story about Jonah, even to the end. The very last words of the book of Jonah are a, are a, a bad mark against Jonah. There, there's no redeeming value in Jonah in this whole thing. Even though he does tell them about God's judgment, the reason he doesn't because he's been puked upon the, the, the shore and he doesn't want to go back to the whale. So he has to preach about God. So he does preach about God, but even that's not a redeeming factor for Jonah because his heart is wrong through the whole thing. It's through the wrong through the whole thing. But here's the interesting thing about the book of Jonah. There is a redeeming, there is a redeeming quality somewhere for Jonah because somewhere Jonah has the revelation, the epiphany of God's grace and everything else because he wrote the book. Sometime after the book was written, I mean after the story of the book, he gets it, so then he comes back and writes the book. If the Jonah at the end of the story would have still been that Jonah to his death, we would never have had the book of Jonah. Somewhere, he has to get it. So for me, Jonah's legacy, Jonah's legacy is a good one. But if you stop at the end of the book, it's a bad one, unless you realize he wrote the book, then it's a good one. Am I making sense with that? That makes sense. Okay. Same thing with James. The reason that we know the brother of Jesus gets it is because he writes the book. Now, his book is a solid theological book. It's very, very powerful, very redeeming. But if he wouldn't have written that book, we would never have known that he got it. Because the last information we have from the Gospels is his brothers and sisters didn't get it. Right? So James' legacy is powerful. But it's because we have the written theology that he gives us about serving Jesus, who also is his brother. Okay? All right. Let me just take a, a couple minutes here. We're going we're gonna to leave in just a few minutes. Let me take just a couple minutes here and read some of this stuff. Um, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. It was by faith that Abel brought a more acceptable offering to God than Cain did. What is Abel and Cain and Abel's legacy? Cain killed Abel, right? The only, the only word we have here of Cain is that his offering wasn't as acceptable as Abel's. That's, that's devastating. He, he, Cain literally goes down in history as the first murderer ever, and it happens to also be his brother. Okay. Um, Abel's offering gave evidence that he was a righteous man and God showed his approval of his gift. It was by faith that Enoch 
was taking up to heaven, taken up to heaven without dying. He disappeared because God took him. For, he, for before he was taken up, he was known as a person who pleased God. It was by faith that Noah built a large boat to save his family from the flood. It was by faith that Abraham obeyed when God called him to leave home and go to another land. You know, some of the things with Abraham, Abraham literally uh, sold his wife into sex slavery to the king because he was scared to death the king was going to kill him. That's not okay. The king says, is that, who's that? And he says, ah, oh, my sister, you can have her. That's, at what point do you, okay, one of my favorite books of all time is The Last of the Mohicans. In the story of The Last of the Mohicans, they're, they're, they're chasing the Mohican and his um, woman, his wife. They chase him up into a cave with a big waterfall and he jumps out into the waterfall to save himself, and, they, and, the, and the other Indians take his wife. Now, the end of the story is he comes back and he rescues her and everything else, and he wins and all that kind of stuff. But I struggled with that. I read that when I was like nine years old, and I struggled with that. Wouldn't it have been better for you both to jump off? That's the way I think about it. Now, I'm not James Fenimore Cooper, and he wrote an amazing book, okay? That's not what I'm, I'm not discussing the literary value of the book. What I'm saying is the story is he saves his wife later by letting her become the concubine of this other Indian chief. I struggle with that. Same thing, the exact same thing Abraham does. Now, God, when he's talking about him here, he's, he, see, this is, the, this is the crazy thing about us as humans and, and God. Is God's grace is so big, and his redeeming power is so big. His healing and his restitution and reconciliatory power is so big. Because a lot of these people that, that God is talking about their faith, they've done some horrible things. Abraham obeyed God when he called him to leave and go to another land. It was by faith that Sarah was able to have a child, though she was barren and too old. These, these are part of these people's legacy. Um, it was by faith that Isaac promised blessings for the future to his sons Jacob and Esau. I was thinking about this the other day. We don't have any record that Abraham told Sarah that he was going to sacrifice Isaac. Did you know that? We, it, we, we don't know that he ever told her. It doesn't say, now Abraham sat down and said, Sarah, I'm going to go tomorrow and kill our kid. He doesn't ever say that. And I've thought about that. What happens when he comes home? What happens when he comes home? And, and Sarah says, where, where were you guys? How did the sacrifice go? I know you took the donkey and all this stuff. How did the sacrifice go? Well, I tried to sacrifice Isaac. You What? I mean, think about that. You did what? But God supplied a ram. It's a good thing for you he supplied a ram, you know, that kind of thing. We don't think about, we don't always think about the people and the stories and all of the other stuff involved sometimes. We say, oh, that was amazing. Abraham, you take Isaac and you're going to sacrifice him. And yeah, wow, you know, okay. It was by faith that Jacob, when he was old and dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons. It was by faith that Joseph, when he was about to die, said confidently that the people of Israel would leave Egypt. How do we know he said that? He said, when you leave Egypt, take my bones with you. He knew they were going to. He knew they were going to leave Egypt. All right. It was by faith that Moses' parents hid him for three months. It was by faith that Moses' parents, I love that. They, get, they don't usually get too much headlines in the story. But Moses' parents hid him. And made it possible for Moses to be the man. I've said this before, and I know this sounds weird, and I don't want to... Anytime I say this, people try to feel like they have to comfort me later, like they're misunderstanding what I'm saying. I, I really believe that, and I've prayed this, I've said this to God before, God, 
If the only reason that I exist on this earth is to raise my children and you so they can be great, I'm okay with that. If that's the only reason I live. And people will come to me, no, Pastor, you're a good pastor. You, you've been a good, you, your legacy is a, is a good pastor. That's okay. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not trying to diminish what I have done. But if there is the possibility that what I have done is irrelevant and all I'm supposed to do is raise my children in God, I'm okay with that. I'm truly okay with that. Now, the, the, the true answer is none of us are irrelevant and all of us have a place and all of us have importance. But part of my responsibility, a major part, is to raise my children in God so they know God. That's okay. It was by faith that Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. It was by faith that the people of Israel went right through the Red Sea as though they were on dry ground. It was by faith that Rahab, what's the next two words? The prostitute. It is by faith that Rahab, the prostitute, Rahab goes down in the hall of fame of Scripture. It was by faith that Rahab, the prostitute, was not destroyed with the people because she had welcomed the spies. You can go down through this. These are legacies. If, if God is writing another uh, the, the New New Testament. <laughs> right now, if God is writing that, which he's not, okay, don't confuse that. Uh, Linda had an uncle for a while that thought he was writing, rewriting the existing Bible. Um, but, huh? Squirrel, yeah. She comes from good stock. So, um, <laughs> but... If somebody was writing the next testament right now, and they were going to include you in the book, one sentence is all you get, one sentence in the entire Bible, one sentence, why would you write that? What would you want the Lord to write? What would you want him to put down there? I think if we're not careful, we, the things that we would include in our resume to God for why we're special is not the things that God has in his resume about us. And one of those sentences, the first will be last and the last will be first, I believe that applies to people, but I also believe that in a spiritual sense it applies to our lives, that a lot of times the things that we're putting first are, are actually not that important, and the things that are last are probably the most important. The wood, hay, and stubble kind of thing. That's what that, that's what that scripture is about, is... God's the one who tries the stuff and tests the stuff, puts it in the fire and sees what comes out on the other side. I think sometimes what we are trying to build as a legacy is not, it's not the best option, I think. So, so how would we pray about this? What's, what's rolling around in your spirit? How... What do you want to say to God right now? Nothing? You want to say nothing to God right now? <laughs> yeah, you know, you know the, Lord, the Lord can do that. You, you also understand in all of this that I've been talking about, our legacy, our eternal legacy is different than our human legacy. You know that, right? What people are going to remember about us is not what they're going to know about us in eternity. All the stuff that are being remembered now will be burned. And the stuff that we will be known as in eternity will be the gold, the pure. How do we know that? Ephesians 5 says that Jesus will present us back to himself as perfect, without spot or blemish. But right now, God erased the stuff. If God does that, he can. He can forgive us. He can wash it clean. doesn't mean that I'm going to forget it. Right? But this is where we have to try to live. And this is what I think part of our prayer should be is, Lord, help me not try to live 
according to what I think people think about me, but what I want you to think about me. Help me to live so that I'm pleasing you. Even if that means I'm not always pleasing the people around me. I just want to please you, Jesus. I just want to please you. I believe if you spend most of your time pleasing Jesus, most of the people, specifically the people that matter, will be pleased with you. Most. But not everybody. So that would be one way. Lord, erase, erase the stuff. Help me please you. Help me to give myself. All right, let's pray. God, oh, we love you so much, Lord. We love your spirit, your presence. We're awed by your power. We're amazed by your holiness, the essence of who you are. Lord, we're overwhelmed by your transcendence. God, we thank you so much for just loving us, for being so big and just loving us. Lord, we ask you to, to help us to be who you want us to be. Lord, not in a, a jumping through the hoops kind of thing, but in relationship. We want to be who you want us to be because we want you to be pleased. We want you to be very pleased and proud. And that we want to be the people that are called by your name, the people that represent you, the people that bring blessing and glory to the nations. We want to be those people. Lord, we thank you so much. We thank you for including us in this whole thing. Lord, we thank you for giving us your word. Lord, and showing us how to live. You didn't have to do that, Lord, but you, sh you show us what you desire. You give us the examples. So, Lord, help us to be who you want us to be. Lord, I, I want to I be close to you. I, I believe everybody in this room does. Lord, help us, to, help us to, deep in our spirit, desire to be close to you. In the name of Jesus. God, help us to reject form and fashion about you. Help us to reject religiosity. Help us to reject a, um, a form of you without your power and your presence. Lord, but help us to just worship you, truly worship you in spirit and in truth. In the name of Jesus. Lord, we thank you and we love you so much. Lord, help us to build a legacy that is pleasing to you, and that you, would, that you would be willing to write it in your book and say, this person followed me. This person was a person of faith. This person pleased me. This person did what I asked them to do. Or do we want to be those people? In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. Don't forget our outreach at the park right down here, um, right at, what is that, Austin Bluffs and Briargate, Saturday. We're going to be handing out cotton candy, uh, snow cones, little popsicles, and uh, just talking to people and hanging out with people and interacting with them. So come show up. We can use you.